coming back. <laughs> um, so you may wonder why it is that I'm speaking so much tonight and not Nick Figarell, uh, the lead pastor of the Open Table. And that is because Nick and uh, Amanda have been at a training all week, day and night, uh, for conflict transformation and uh, nonviolence. And uh, we wanted to give Nick a break and let him just attend. So uh, thank you. Thank you, Nick. Someone once asked Jesus what the two greatest commandments uh, were, and Jesus' response was to love God and to love your neighbor. It's condensing of it, uh, but he told this story about how you know your neighbor. There was a man going from Jerusalem down to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and left him half dead by the roadside. Now by coincidence, a priest was going down that road. When he caught sight of the man, he went out of his way to avoid him. In the same way, when a Levite came to the place, he took one look at the man and crossed the road to avoid him. But the Samaritan, who was traveling that way, came to where the man was and was moved to pity at the sight of him. He went up to him and bandaged his wounds, he hoisted him onto his own animal, brought him to an inn, and looked after him. Go and do likewise. This is a paraphrase of uh, Jesus' words in Luke chapter 10. Um, Jesus often acted and spoke in ways that were contrary to narratives of his time. Um, told people to love their neighbors instead of get back at them. And we often hear some of that narrative. Maybe... Um, in ourselves, maybe in our families, in our friendships, in our country, um, in the world, we may hear that voice. And so from time to time at the Open Table, we make time to tell stories um, in our community that are contrary to that and which point us towards love. And tonight's theme is Breaking the Cycle of Violence, and two members of our community from our leadership team will be sharing short stories, and then we'll have some time for small storytelling in smaller groups as well. The first storyteller, Micah Chrisman, is a local author and activist and is on the leadership team at Open Table. He's one of our anti-racism trainers as well. He earned an MA in mass communication and his grad work centered around the social movement rhetoric of Ferguson and Black Lives Matter. He currently works as the digital communications coordinator for the city of Casey Mill Health Department, educating and collaborating with partners on issues, on issues of health disparities and racial equity. He also enjoys wilderness adventures with his dog, Rila. <laughs> uh, our second storyteller, Amanda Balaban-Landayan, is a member also of the Open Table Leadership Team and a member of our anti-racism cohort. She recently graduated with her MSW and identifies as a social justice worker. She works hard to use her power as a way to lift the voices of others. Amanda believes that the best way she can serve her people is to work with them and then get out of the way and only advocate if and when it is necessary. Her vision is to work with people, groups, and organizations to create a just and equitable society free from judgment and oppression where all human beings can reach their fullest potential. So please join me in welcoming our two storytellers. Thanks, Wendy. I think that's what our world is desperately in need of. Lovers, people who are building deep, genuine relationships with fellow strugglers along the way. 
and who actually know the faces of the people behind the issues they are concerned about. A quote is by Shane Claiborne in his book, The Irresistible Revolution, Living as an Ordinary Radical. Any of you know who Shane Claiborne is or have heard of him? So he's like a writer activist uh, who started an intentional community called The Simple Way um, up in Philadelphia. And one of his issues that he really advocates and is concerned about and fights against is the death penalty. And uh, growing up, I had a different way of how I viewed the death penalty, which was there's usually some kind of circumstance where somebody deserves death. And I remember seeing a quote from him one time on social media, and he said, he who has no sin, inject the first lethal injection. And that hit me really hard, and it made me, wow, like as a person who's a a Christian or a self-proclaimed person of faith, um, how am I, even in this small example, still from a philosophical standpoint, still perpetuating a mindset of violence. So uh, in our society, racial prejudice and implicit biases have made the predominant culture, namely white Christian folk, uh, the judge and executioners of people of color. Even if we aren't the ones who pull the trigger or deport the families or imprison the sons and daughters, if we refuse to see the faces of the people behind these issues, like Shane says, we are just as guilty as those who do. So if I can, I'd like to just share a little bit of a snippet of a, a formative part of my life, a portion of my life when I was at University of Central Missouri. Woo woo, all my people. Um, any, any Dirty Berg fans in here? Um, number one consumer of Natty Light, that's all I can say in the nation. Uh, true story, like two years running. Um, I started work, or teaching there and working at the University of Central Missouri, working on my master's. Um, and... Uh, they offered to pay for my master's if I taught public speaking, so I said, sure. And we just now, August 9th, was the anniversary uh, of Michael Brown's uh, murder. And that started happening literally right when I started working on my master's program. And so I started to do research on it, and and it was just... My, I just remember having a night where I, I broke because I, we uh, I was in a class, and we were just... Um, had to, we were doing research because we were talking about media and how it's influencing the social movement and just seeing the videos of the rubber bullets and truly nonviolent protesters out there and the police, you know, National Guard saying disperse or you'll be fired upon and um, tear gas and flash grenades and just seeing these acts of violence play out I decided, I was like, okay, this is something I need to like study and research more. I need to like I need to understand what's going on in our culture because um, again, growing up poor and um, uh, kind of rural poverty, I guess, uh, you know, you get to, you tend to be isolated even with my circumstances that way. A year later, officer Darren, well, former officer Darren Wilson was not indicted for his crimes. So more protests ensued. And at that time I was teaching and, and if you know Warrensburg, it's got a large mix up of St. Louis students and Kansas City students. And so I had Students came up to me, and so I want to share one particular really critical moment that it just, again, I'm doing this research, reading these things, studying all these articles or whatever in the videos of citizen journalists. But then it became really real when a student came up to me, and he's in the National Guard, and he says, I'm going to give you my deployment papers. I mean, like, as if he's going to Afghanistan or Iraq. And he's like, no, I'm going to Ferguson, and uh, i got to be at the armory at 3 in the morning, get all the gear, and I'm going to go. I had other students who were also going back home to Ferguson um, or the St. Louis area, and they were going to protest. 
So a few days later, they always, you know, they, they all come back, and after class, some of the students are showing me videos of, like, them out in the streets protesting. But I was talking to the National Guard student, and again, we're talking, like, these are 18-year-olds, right? They're, they're like, young folk. And uh, I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, I saw he was on the front line, the National Guard student. He was uh, in the, uh, the shield wall, you would call it. And he said, I saw a protester reach behind his back, and I almost drew my gun on him. But then he pulled out a water ball and threw it at me. I'm glad I didn't have to shoot him. And that was like when it hit me. I was just like, here are these kids being pitted against each other. And this is like systemic oppression, right? This microcosm that's happening in Ferguson right now. They're here in a class learning about these things, but then on the streets, they're being literally on opposite sides of a line. But that's what implicit and racial bias does. That's how the violence, the cycle of violence of racial prejudice works is it teaches us to see a threat where there is no threat just like Darren Wilson shot Michael Brown when there was no gun this incident could have been very well this student's experience shooting somebody because he thought there was the threat when there wasn't one some places yeah we have to unlearn our prejudice and tear down the filters that mask how we see the world so from that point on I was just like okay I have to like Shane says I have to start like inserting myself into these situations. I can't just write about it in my university and my ivory tower, you know? Um, and so I heard about Cherithbrook Catholic Worker. How have you guys heard of them? They're cool people, very integral to this community as well, at the open table. Um, and so I went and lived there for a while and um, wanted to insert myself into the place of where racism and poverty intersect here in the city in Kansas City. And just that whole journey has just really opened up my eyes to see people in this city through a whole new light that we can create bridges that the rest of society is creating these gaps. So we can disrupt systemic oppression by inserting ourselves into these issues and uh, promote it. And the only way to break the cycle of violence against racism and poverty is by first analyzing our role in the cycle of violence, organizing to end the oppression that our ancestors perpetuated, and seeing, truly seeing the face of those who are affected by it. I guess my whole thing is like, what's the whole point of social justice if it's not supposed to like bring community together? Thanks. All right, thank you, Micah. That was so good. Um, good evening. This is the first time I will be sharing my story, so um, I would just invite you to maybe close your eyes, because I'm not going to be looking or maybe as engaging as Micah was, um, and to also just make this a safe space, because um, it's going to be a lot. So I'm really excited to share it with you all, and the title of it is just Knitted Beloved. The Lord knitted me in the womb of a mother I have never met. I grew in the belly of a woman whom I imagined was a warrior, filled with unconditional love, generosity, courage, and strength. For nine months, I was immersed in this divine spirit passed down from our ancestors, filling my soul with the Lord's truth. The nine months I spent being created in my mother's womb prepared me for a journey filled with pain, love, kindness, and heartache resulting in my reemergence as the woman the Lord created me to be, powerful and fierce. I was born into the world wanted and unwanted. My mother, who provided me with a loving womb, signed over her rights. The woman to whom I first called mommy and later mom is giving, loving, compassionate, and wounded. 
I will not fully share her story, as it is not mine to tell. However, our stories are intertwined, for mine could not begin without hers. I believe my mom desperately wanted me. She wanted to love and to be loved. Her husband did not wish to keep me. I would never call him daddy or dad. Later, my mom would marry the man whom I call dad, a man who is kind, caring, encouraging, proud, and wounded. They are my parents, and they raised me to the best of their abilities. I grew up in a home and community where I never felt like I belonged. My mother lovingly explained my olive skin as special. She referred to me as the child she chose. My grandparents grew up in the era of color blindness, but my grandmother, who was Sicilian Italian, would talk to me about skin color. She told me the same thing her father, my great-grandfather, told her when she came home crying or upset after being rejected or made fun of because of her ethnicity. Baby, she'd said, we are all the same underneath. Then she would remind me that my grandfather blessed me. He sat in the back seat looking at me in my car seat and said these words. Dago this way, Dago that way, now use a Dago. These are the only words or stories I heard about race when I was growing up. Over the years, the ones who loved me, chose me, and raised me would become the source of the most significant heartache I have ever experienced. It began with looks and later my confidence. I was told to wear makeup. There were jokes about how my hair never looked really combed. I was told people are always going to give you a hard time about your skin color. Figure it out for yourself. I cannot help you. I was also told it's okay to have pictures of guys who look like that, but it is not okay to date them. I carried these words with me and they began to shape my identity. Do not date them. You are special. Color does not matter. Use a dago. I cannot help you. In addition to the white supremacy culture of my childhood, my family learned about the cruelty of addiction. Once in a moment of desperation, I felt the hands of the one who chose me around my throat. My sister saves me. Another time, I was on the wrong end of a drug-induced rage. Thankfully, it was over the phone. In, the moment I le- in that moment, I learned the power of self-advocacy. In response, I developed a me- defense mechanism rooted in self-preservation. In my life, I have known my protectors to be the source of my most traumatic experiences. Over time, I learned to distrust people. My self-preservation skills helped me navigate the world of whiteness. I learned to justify the color of my skin, always communicating that my parents were white and I looked this way because I was adopted. Additionally, I never felt safe to talk about the chaos happening in my home. Excuse me. I found ways to suppress my feelings through avoidance and accommodation. I developed the habit of putting others' needs before my own. Later, much later, I would read a poem written by Langston Hughes. I read this poem deciphering the words as if they were a new language, trying to understand the America he was talking about, an America I somehow connected with. His truth of the unfulfilled American promise seemed more aligned with the world I experienced internally, a world I did not have the vocabulary to speak about. His word gave validation to my experiences. In my mid-twenties, I met a professor who educated me about racism, poverty, and the intersectionality of both in America. I now had the context and vocabulary to speak my truth. 
Also, I now understood that some people will always try to break my spirit and take my power. I was often told that the Lord knows our path before we begin our journey. I do not think the Lord's wish for me was to experience deep pain and heartache at a tender age. I do know the Creator gifted me with an inner strength that can only be described as holy. Through righteous self-interrogation, excuse me, through rigorous self-interrogation and time spent reading and inviting and accepting the Lord's words into my soul, heart, and mind, I eventually began to unravel the teachings of my childhood. I started to tell my story, myself a different story and began shaping a new identity. Presently and slowly, the spirit and power within me is emerging and transforming me into the woman who belongs to no one and no longer justifies the color of her skin, a woman who is a social and racial justice warrior and wounded healer. I am vulnerable, courageous, loving, and generous. I am filled with the spirit carefully knitted into me while I was in my mother's womb, the spirit that fills my soul, repaired my broken heart, and whose ancestors uplift me. I am a woman filled with the light of the Holy Trinity. Thank you. Micah and Amanda, thank you for your vulnerability, being willing to share something personal in front of a group of people. Um, All right, thank you for sharing your stories tonight. We found these moments to be powerful in community building and um, they help remind us of where we're going together. Thanks. Tony's gonna offer a few closing words and a blessing. Well, uh, in processing and thinking tonight, I'm gonna kind of paraphrase a little bit of Flannery O'Connor. She pointed out that as storytellers and listeners of stories, we're looking for a redemptive quality to those stories, an opportunity that something that is broken can be fixed, something that has fallen can be raised up. And tonight, I think we've proven that. So my challenge to each and every one of us is go out, insert ourselves into the stories where we're needed, listen to those moments where we need to listen, be aware of our role in that story, and most, most importantly, be fierce, be brave, be bold, be courageous. Amen.